Hey everyone, welcome to Home Alone and Comfortable as Heck, the podcast that takes a deep dive into canine behavior, building up alone time comfort, and helping improve the welfare of our beloved canine companions. In this podcast, we will discuss real-life tactics for modifying behavior, real alone time case studies, and help guide you through the emotional process of behavior change. So sit back, relax, and get ready to take the next step in your alone time training. First and foremost, you guys, I am beyond overwhelmed with joy in regards to the amount of feedback I have been receiving from all of you via email, text message, direct message, etc. Thank you so much for taking the time to just send that positive reinforcement my way. It really is what kind of allows me to continue doing these types of things where I'm creating and spending hours on free content for families all over the world. So thank you so much. I appreciate each and every one of you. And for today, so as I mentioned last week, today we're going to dive a lot deeper into the process in which you start working through training and building up alone time comfort. Um, But as always, I have a couple of awesome questions from some of you listeners out there. So I wanted to make sure I spend some time chatting about that before we dive into the nitty gritty of all things training today. And um, yeah, let's go ahead and dive on in. So the first question that I received is from Rachel R. And she was asking whether or not following to the door is bad. So long story short, um, it depends. You will hear me say it depends as a response to pretty much everything when it comes to training and not even just me, most, most of your other professionals out there, because it does depend. Every dog is such an individual. So we definitely need to take that into considerations. One of the main reasons why I put such a heavy emphasis on the initial threshold assessment is so that we can take the time necessary to gather the specifics about our pup's specific escalation ladder. Um, And if following to the door is the first sign that your pup is about to climb their ladder, then I definitely work below that point. The best way to kind of think about this and wrap your mind around whether the door is a bad situation for your pup or not is that uh, all behavior serves a function. Okay. So if the function of following you to the door during a training session or real absence, if you haven't dove into training yet, is to decrease the distance between yourself and, or sorry, themselves and you in hopes of avoiding the absence, then I would argue that following to the door is likely that first stressor for your pup. Again, though, every dog is such an individual. So the best thing we can do is be their advocate, listen to their own canine forms of communication with us, and then adjust our criteria accordingly. Not only that, but most of these families that I've worked with over the years, when we dive into a protocol, they pretty much already know that when their dog goes to the door, the vocalizations or whatever their specific symptoms are going to ensue. So if we already have that increase in potential stress, we need to remember that an increase in stress has the likelihood to have an increase in cortisol and an increase in cortisol, also known as the stress hormone or the fight or flight hormone, is likely going to inhibit the learning process. So you know me, I'm all about the comfort aspect and going to the door is not all 
always going to be a negative, but in the beginning, if it can be that, if it can be a first helper to kind of allow us to dictate whether or not that pup is super comfortable or if they're starting to climb their ladder, I avoid it um, for certain cases in the beginning. And then down the line, when we spend the time avoiding it in the beginning, down the line, we can have a pup that goes to the door. Many of my clients when they're graduating or not even graduating, even at like that 30 minute of gorgeous alone time, they at that point, since we have worked so hard with comfort that they oftentimes can then follow to the door a couple months into training, sniff it, leave, go do their own merry thing, right? So every dog's an individual. Look at your dog's stress escalation ladder. But yes, generally speaking, in the beginning, that initial follow is usually an indicator um, that your pup is uh, having a little bit of increase in concern etc. Um, this is always a really common question that clients ask. So I will probably dive quite a bit deeper into that when we talk a little bit more about threshold and brain function and all of that geeky sciencey stuff. Um, so Rachel, Allar, hopefully that helped you in regards to the question that you had. And the, the next question I have is actually from an anonymous listener. Um, so they had asked about their pup who barks um, for hours on end right now. They're not working on alone time. And they were curious if a bark, if a bark collar would be helpful. So sadly, this is a very commonly recommended option for dogs that struggle with alone time. Going back to the first question that I just answered, when in which I noted that all behavior serves a function, the same applies to vocalizations, okay? So using a bark collar might remove the symptom, aka the barking, from the equation, but it will not be helpful in addressing that underlying issue, okay? And that is a potential increase in fear anxiety, stress, or frustration. So not only that, but using a bark collar absolutely has the potential to exacerbate the issue and make things even more challenging to overcome as you're pairing a negative stimuli with an already stressful or anxiety inducing situation. So I know barking can be incredibly frustrating for owners that live in close proximity to their neighbors, but the good news is that with my home alone training uh, protocol, you will be working below any potential increase in fear, anxiety, or stress, or frustration for that matter, meaning that the symptom of barking will not be on the table. It won't be present as we start to build up um, and navigate towards alone time comfort. So just something to keep in mind. Removing a symptom is not going to change the underlying emotional response. And if our end goal is long-lasting behavior change, we've got to work on that underlying emotional response. So Whoever you were out there, anonymous listener, thank you so much for that question. Um, I imagine I'm probably going to spend some time diving deeper into this topic as well, um, but that will be for a later date. We've got a lot on our table for today. So um, as always, you guys, if any questions pop up throughout the you know the podcast, feel free, send me a direct message on Instagram. You can tag me on Twitter. Um, you can go to my website, send me a chat message, etc. Just make sure that you get that to me and I'm always more than happy to dive deeper into some of those questions. Plus, it helps me really know what what you want to know, you know, what's helpful for you in regards to these podcasts. So thank you for that. So let's just go ahead and dive on into the juicy stuff. Let's talk about training. Let's talk about where to start after that initial threshold assessment, what to expect, what to avoid, the basics, etc. So first off, now that you have your notes from your initial threshold assessment regarding your dog's individual stress escalation ladder, um, we can start working on building our training plan. So take a look at your notes, determine where that first initial stressor takes place, and 
And again, this typically um, takes place well below the point of vocalizations, and it might look something like um, lip licks or increasing in yawns, jumping out of a settled position, etc. I know it's really common for a lot of families out there to think about the, um, you know, the overall response to just the vocalizations or the pacing or the digging, etc., etc., etc. But usually, if we dig deeper, there's multiple other uh, little shifts to behavior or body language that we can actually hone in on. So keep that in mind. So now that we know that, um, the majority of the training that we're going to do for the week is going to be focusing below whatever that initial stressor was on your initial threshold assessment. So for example, let's say if your pup, um, maybe their first sign was um, sitting up from, maybe they were laying down relaxed in a totally sprawled out position. And at one point in the initial threshold assessment, they sat up or had like an overt uh, shift to body language or posture. That might be that first stressor. So in the beginning, I go super, super, super conservative and so easy because we already know our dogs have some baggage when it comes to alone time, right? We already know that there is potential fear, anxiety, stress, or frustration. So when we are working on changing that emotional response, it is much more beneficial to go super slow, you know, in the beginning, just really build up like some amazing amounts of comfort to the point where it looks totally different than that scary situation that they were experiencing prior. And that will just really help create that nice, strong, solid foundation and really help um, prevent the most that we can, um, like any potential regressions, plateaus. And I'll talk more about that in a few here because those are absolutely normal in the training process. So we're going to be focusing below that point. And the goal of our training, um, notice I said training, not necessarily the threshold assessment, but the goal of our training is to maximize the level of comfort to the best of our ability so that we will be number one focusing on the comfort and not so much the duration criteria increases etc and that's what's really going to help again change that emotional response so to kind of dive into some of the basics. So when you're working on training and you're working on building up an alone time protocol, this is not a cookie cutter process, okay? It's not a cookie cutter process for any of the cases that we work or different dogs that I've worked with. And it's also not going to be the same for the human learner as well. So be flexible with yourself while you're trying to build this up. And um, some of the basics that I usually recommend, and if you can't hit every single one of these, it's not the end of the world, um, but basically, on average, I would say work to train about four times a week. Okay. Keeping in mind that those training sessions are focused on comfort. And then in addition to the training sessions, about four times a week on average, we are going to be doing about maybe one weekly threshold check-in. Um, and the reason why we wanna do this weekly threshold check-in is mainly for two things. First off, we wanna make sure that we are going as fast as we possibly can, because we all know that behavior change is not going to happen overnight. So we wanna make sure we're going as fast as we possibly can but also not that we're not going too fast to the point where it is pushing our pup close to or in that gray zone or close to threshold, heaven forbid. So doing a threshold check-in on a little bit more of a regular basis can be helpful to kind of put us in check and see, you know, what should our criteria be for that next week, etc. So another thing that I highly recommend is start data tracking your training sessions. Um, and I know this sounds scary. A lot of people are not super big on doing data collection, etc. cetera. 
but it can really be a make or break in your trainings because you can start to pick up on things that either make it easier for your pup or maybe even things that make it harder for your pup. Some of these common um, things that I would track with clients are what time of day did you do the session, right? Was it morning? Was it afternoon? Was it evening, etc.? What was your dog's level of stress prior to the, the the training session itself? How much activity had they had prior? Um, what was the environmental setup? For example, is there a thunderstorm going on? Are there neighbors moving in, etc.? And then also keeping track of a success score can also be super helpful because if you have a super easy, for example, one through five success score, and you're looking back at why you were getting threes on some days and fives on others, you might find that there is a common denominator, which could be time of day. It could be the level of stress prior, activity, etc. And keep in mind when I'm saying activity, by no means am I implying that more activity is better. There's actually quite a few cases I've had in which more activity prior to a training session would uh, lend towards less comfort, less settling on the actual session itself. So I just like to be cognizant of the level of activity, but not saying more is better, etc. So back uh, to less is more being realistic off days. You guys, this is huge. Just like us humans need days off um, from work, etc. our weekends, our dogs do too. Any little level of stress, even though we're going to be working at such comfortable levels right now, any level of stress has the potential to pile up and start to uh, potentially trigger stack our dogs. So allowing them decompression breaks, just taking days off, just being dogs, you know, not having extra stress on the table is incredibly helpful. Um, another thing is do not necessarily aim for the real time of the departure in the beginning. For example, um, a lot of clients, they are prepping for a normal nine to five job. For example, you don't need to always train at that eight or 9 a.m. Um, what I actually recommend, especially in the beginning, is set up your sessions and the environment to help your pup be the most successful possible. And you can always increase the criteria later. This is another reason why I like tracking time of day, because if you find like um, a lot of pups will have what I call a sweet spot with their training. So for example, let's say 1 p.m. If your dog does amazing at 1 p.m., it's going to be more helpful for you to set them up for success and focus in that super comfy zone in the beginning. And then again, you can always increase your criteria later to harder times of day, etc. Let's get them the experience first. Um, in regards to sessions, so I commonly recommend that sessions should be no more than 30 minutes, okay? Um, and 30 minutes itself, uh, that's not a specific absence. That is multiple different steps, and I'll talk about what that looks like in a second, but that is multiple different steps that might go between 15, 30 minutes um, until, of course, obviously, you hit that gorgeous 30-minute mark. Then by default, your durations are going to get longer, therefore your sessions are longer, but but hey, that's why we're doing the training, right? Um, another super helpful thing is to remove pre-departure cues in the beginning. And I'm going to explain more about that in a minute here. And pre-departure cues just um, is referring to those things that you do before you leave, like grabbing your keys, locking the deadbolt, etc., etc. 
So going back to the um, the amount of different steps, etc. As I mentioned earlier, you're not going for like just 30 minutes in and of itself. So most commonly in the beginning, training sessions are usually going to include between five to 12 different steps consisting of incredibly super easy, maybe upwards of moderate level um, types of steps. And I consider these uh, warm ups. And then it's also going to include a target criteria step. So it's very important that we're not always going, you know, super easy to hard at the end we, and we'll talk more about toggling in a second here but generally speaking we want to kind of vary what that step is so maybe you'll go for an easy then a moderate then another moderate maybe an easy maybe a harder one easy again then your target criteria step etc so always be sure that you're varying your criteria we do not want our dogs to start to pick up on patterns and have the training become predictable this includes not only varying how many warm-ups you use as as I mentioned, between five and 12 is pretty average for a brand new pup starting to train. So always vary day to day how many warmups you have, what your target criteria is, and don't always make things harder. So when I'm saying tar- target criteria, that could be let's say during your initial threshold assessment your pup um, jumps off the couch when you are out the door for two seconds so what you might do for one of those sessions for that week in between the next threshold assessment would be to maybe one of your sessions target criteria is just an exit immediate return right not the additional two seconds in which they jumped off so at that note your target criteria would be that hardest step and generally speaking that's usually at the end there are are some exceptions to that but that is much deeper to dive into so I don't have time to do that today but generally speaking it usually takes place at the end so the warm-ups are kind of setting them up for what is about to happen and uh, kind of getting them in that training mode in the beginning so this is likely already very overwhelming for you and if so you are not alone there is a reason why there are trainers and specialists in this specific field and even trainers that have been training for decades and they don't take these types of cases so it's very specific and there's a reason why we we professionals exist so if you want more of a step-by-step breakdown for everything i mean including getting ready for training maybe you haven't even brought your pup home from the shelter or the breeder how to prepare for that and gradually introduce them to loan time, etc. So it will cover everything from um, that lower level all the way up to setting up your sessions, etc. If this is something, if this breakdown is something that would be interesting to you, I highly encourage you check out my online training platform, Home Alone, Four Phases to Comfort, as I dive deep into each of these subjects to encourage maximum success. And I will leave a, a link to that in the show or in the show notes as well. So going back to Home Alone, uh, Four Phases to Comfort, I break this down into four easily digestible phases. Phase one is essentially getting you to the door without stress, um, then manipulating the door without stress. Manipulating just means things like turning the knob, opening two inches, opening, crossing the threshold, etc., and then eventually exiting the door without any stress. So once you are able to exit the door with, with your pup comfy, sprawled, not concerned about what you're doing 
take a photo. You guys, this photo is going to help you dictate when to increase your criteria each week as you move forward. So basically that level of comfort that you're seeing with your pup, I mean, every dog's going to be somewhere a little bit different, but back on the couch, laying on the bed, laying in their dog bed, etc. When they're at that point and you're getting out the door, no duration yet, but you're out the door and they don't have a care in the world, take a photo of that because this is what you're going to reference when as you move forward. This is a level of comfort that we're looking to proof on each individual level. So after phase one, we focus on low levels of duration outside. Then we focus on distance away from the exit point. Then we focus on duration away from the exit point. And then we start to add in the complexities of pre-departure cues. So you're probably wondering why I do pre-departure cues last. And there is a very valid reason for this. So when we are working on building up comfort, going to and from the door, etc., we are helping change the emotional response of that initial departure, right? A lot of pups, they start to amp themselves up and get stressed out at the very beginning initial departure, walking to the door that first uh, second after you exit, etc. So if we can remove the emotional baggage of the exit, it can make the inclusion of our pre-departure cues run much smoother. And the reason for that is because most of these pre-departure cues, they're cues of the departure because they predict that that departure is going to happen. And again, that means things like keys, putting on your shoes, locking the deadbolt, grabbing coats, etc. So those individual items likely have different varying levels of emotional response for your pup when you first dive in. And they have that emotional baggage because you exiting is scary. So if we can work on you exiting not being scary anymore, going back and adding in those pre-departure cues, sure, there's always some level of complexity, but they're not going to be going in fully over their head with all that emotional baggage because you removed the scary thing that they predicted, right? The exit itself is no longer scary. So um, that's kind of it on pre-departure cues. And I'm sure I'll dive deeper into that in a future episode at one point. Um, but I definitely wanted to spend some time talking about common mistakes that I see when um, clients are either training on their own or maybe they've done some self-research and conflicting advice is kind of bouncing them back and forth, etc. So I wanted to talk a little bit about those common mistakes so that you can just try to avoid them. So number one common mistake that I see often is always aiming for a personal best. So you guys, we need to remember we are focusing on changing an emotional response, not winning a race. The, getting that duration faster and faster is not the goal. Of course, it, I mean, in a sense it is, you wanna be able to leave, live, live some sort of normalcy, et cetera, but our whole goal goal is to change the underlying emotional response. So always aiming for a personal best is just not realistic. Another thing that is not realistic is percentage increases. This is not realistic. It's not helpful and it's not allowing you to observe the dog in front of you. If you are always aiming for for example, a 25% increase every single week or between your sessions, you're doing a 50 cent, in, uh, 50 cent, 50% 50 increase, etc. That is not you observing your dog. You are not paying attention to body language and you have to understand that behavior and threshold is going to vary day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute based on the environment. So putting a label of a specific percentage on for your increases is not helpful 
don't do it. When it comes to another common mistake that I see is pushing to that initial point of stress every day when you're training um, to kind of help you dictate when to come back. Reminder, you guys, we are trying to focus on maximizing comfort. So during our training sessions throughout the week, I commonly tell clients that we want to aim for like that four out of five or that five out of five comfort success score. Because if we are constantly always pushing into the point where our dog shows that initial stress, we're reminding them a little bit of the stress that they already have with alone time every single time we do the sessions. So it seems counterintuitive, but honestly, those easy wins that we throw in add more into their comfort bank than those increases in duration are, than the increases in duration do. So that's why I have a difference between my almost daily training sessions that clients do. Again, reminder, that's about four times a week on average. And that is different than a threshold check-in or a threshold assessment. The threshold check-in, threshold assessment, we can go a little bit further to kind of see, again, are we going as fast as we can? Are we going too fast for our pup, etc. So once a week, it's fine. If you climb up that stress escalation ladder just a little bit more, keep in mind we're, we're trying to improve the overall welfare of our pups. So constantly pushing them into stress when you can avoid it is not helpful. But once a week, you can go a little bit further just so you can see where to start your criteria. But keep in mind, always waiting till you see that initial stressor is not going to be lending to the fastest, most uh, maximized comfort possible. So even though you're going to be going way below that initial stressor to kind of bulk up that foundation, it is incredibly helpful. And that's why so many of my clients are not tolerating and they are actually comfortable during alone time. Another thing to keep in mind is focusing on multiple criteria increases at a time. Um, with systematic desensitization, we really need to be cognizant of stress. As we are adding in multiple criteria increases at once, we are not allowing ourselves the due diligence of seeing exactly what, what specific trigger might be causing a certain response. So um, this, for example, means things like adding in multiple pre-departure cues at once. So things like doing the picking up your keys and locking the deadbolt on the same um, like type of session that you're doing, it's going to be much more helpful for you in the long run to isolate these individual criterias just because if you see something potentially go awry or something's maybe going south or maybe there's a plateau in regression, but you've only added in one new stressor or one new criteria, you will know exactly what it is, generally speaking, um, that is causing this regression or plateau. So it can be really tempting for us to add on multiple things at once. But if you want that true lasting behavior change and comfort as quickly as possible, just do yourself a favor, slow your roll, one increase at a time. And then the other thing that I wanna make sure, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, is make sure that you're not always making things harder, you guys. And this includes warm up order, always going from the easiest step on the first one to the hardest step on the final. Um, it also includes target criteria getting harder each day. Reminder, this is not a race. So we are slowly working on changing an emotional response and not just tacking on duration. So be systematic about it. Vary the difficulty each day 
day, even if your pup does amazing two days in a row, that does not mean you're going to jump up and do another increase. More often than not, if my pups or my clients do two amazing sessions back to back, heck yeah, dude, I'm going to give you a super easy win just to add more comfort into the bank. Okay. Again, there's a reason why I focus on comfort and not just tolerating an absence. And it's because I want to really change that underlying emotional response. And this is how you do it. All right, so as if I haven't already overwhelmed you with all of this information at this point, um, one last little bit of a segment that I wanted to talk about in relation to training is things to remember, things that will be helpful as you're moving through the protocol. First off, everybody out there, our dogs, whatever individual you're working with, dog, cat, goat, who knows whatever you're training and whether or not it's an actual canine, remember, behavior is not linear. Okay. Every case is going to have ebbs and flows and that is totally normal. Just as us human learners have good days and bad days, same applies to our animals. Um, if I'm being honest though, in my experience, focusing on as much comfort as possible can dramatically minimize these ebbs and flows and allow a lot more consistency in the day to day. So remember regressions are absolutely normal for all cases, but if you see one like pop up in your training process, you might want to take a look at some of these common reasons that I see regressions occur more often. Um, and that includes um, increasing criteria too quickly, jumbling, like AKA jumbling too much altogether at once can definitely uh, fall under that classification. Environmental influences can definitely have um, a little bit of an increase in, uh, um, in overall behavior, lending towards a regression or plateau. Environmental influences could be, I mean, really anything. It could be, again, loud neighbors upstairs that just moved in that are creating a little bit of a harder and scary situation for your pup. It could be um, super bad weather's out. Maybe it's snowing and your pup's getting less activity, so their overall enrichment and welfare has just slightly decreased. Um, it could be seasonal allergies. Um, I've had something as small as, uh, not as small, this isn't a small thing, but I've had something as uh, random as a dog needing their anal glands expressed. And that's what caused their all of a sudden uptick in um, discomfort, right? And that, that caused essentially the progression or plateau. So keep in mind environmental influences, and that also includes what's going on with their body and their emotional well-being. Um, underlying medical concerns. If you ever see a random shift to be behavior um, that seems to kind of pop out of nowhere, always check in with your vet because that can usually, or not usually, but that can sometimes be a sign of potential underlying pain that we're not aware of, um, GI issues, etc. So underlying medical concerns can spike these regressions, plateaus. And most importantly, and what I see a lot happen or happen a lot with these cases is additional stressors outside of alone time. So keep in mind that every dog is very much an individual. And when it comes down to it, if your specific pup is constantly stressed in a variety of situations, for example, a lot of these cases have um, leash reactivity or stranger danger or noise sensitivities, etc. If you have all of these stressors piling up in addition to alone time, there is a likelihood that your pup could potentially become trigger stacked and even though those seemingly unrelated situations shouldn't feel like they should impact alone time, it can absolutely trickle down. So you'll hear me say this time and time again, but stress does not live in a bubble, unfortunately. 
So keep in mind that high levels of fear, anxiety, and stress are not just inconvenient for our uh, for us humans, but they are very much a welfare concern for our pup. Removing as much stress as we possibly can can greatly increase not only your pup's level of welfare, but can also really help expedite the process in my experience. So anything you can do to manage outside stressors or work on behavior modification, if this in and of itself isn't already overwhelming, anything you can do to just overall increase your pup's comfort and homeostasis it will be greatly helpful and beneficial with alone time training and um, last but not least you guys trauma lives in the body and every individual has their own experience okay so please keep in mind that in some cases behavior modification alone might not be enough for a certain individual if you find yourself stuck or struggling to make progress my number one recommendation is to make sure you have your veterinarian and our vet behaviorist on board so that we can make sure that we're making the biggest impact we possibly can and working towards increased welfare and comfortable alone time. Did today's episode leave you with any lingering questions? I would be more than happy to address them on my next podcast. Please send me any questions or comments pertaining to this episode via Instagram at Training with Allie and or on Twitter at Training with Allie. I'm very much looking forward to hearing from you. All links and information discussed on this podcast can be found in the show notes below. This podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any individual case. Please consult your veterinarian before adding to or modifying your pet's current treatment plan.